Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. Alternate tagline, step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. This show was launched on the back of those slogans and specifically on the back of a climb I did up Mount Kilimanjaro with four friends back in the summer of 2019. I took my Zoom recorders with me. That's not the software Zoom, but the actual Zoom recorders. And on return was commissioned by Radio Kingston in the city in which I live in New York State to produce a four-part documentary with the understanding that it would form the foundation of a podcast to be launched at some soon-to-be-future point. Well, the pandemic came along in 2020. That gave the inspiration to turn those documentaries into podcast episodes. And the podcast has been running, albeit with a break between season one and season two, ever since. The mini-documentary, From Kingston to Kilimanjaro, formed the first four episodes, and it's long been my intent to stitch them together, free them up of repetition of the intros and outros that uh, sat with them over the course of those first four episodes, and present the documentary as one admittedly long, but hopefully educational and entertaining, informative, and who knows, possibly even inspirational documentary. At the time that I produced and edited this show, I was feeling quite ambitious having just come off working on a podcast with the music group, the Pixies, called it's a Pixies podcast. And I will say I spent a lot of time on the editing process trying to make it more like a radio, like a radio documentary than your simple podcast. And as an author who's used to doing a lot of research for nonfiction books, uh, this is really a fact-packed podcast. I did a lot of dedicated research for this as well. Really tried to check my material, try to make sure that you would learn something from this. And it's not just, you know, a lengthy equivalent of one of these YouTube videos where it's all look at me, look at me. It's really meant to give you historical context, cultural context and and human interest stories besides. Climbing Kilimanjaro is a time-honoured but also a timeless activity. You can do it once, you can be like one of our guides and have done it several hundred times. I doubt that it ever really gets old. I want to go back. If you're interested in joining and coming up Mount Kilimanjaro, specifically if you're in an older age group but you're athletic, you're fit and you like to take on the climb, make contact. Maybe we can do this more often. This lengthy episode is going to remain undated in the hope that you might just stumble across it in your podcast feed when searching for Mount Kilimanjaro, which is, in case you didn't know, located in Tanzania, in East Africa. And if you did hear the first four episodes way back, well, maybe you'll enjoy hearing them all stitched together. And if you didn't hear them but are new to the show, ditto. So feel free to sit back or alternately put on your own hiking boots and join us on the climb to the roof of Africa, the high point of our lives as we set about going on a journey that we could only describe as 
My name is Tony Fletcher, and in August 2019, I set off with four friends and a guide to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. At 19,341 feet, that's 5,895 metres above sea level, Kilimanjaro is the highest point of Africa, and it's the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. Perhaps because of this, because it's actually a volcano, it's also the highest mountain in the world that you can climb without need for professional gear. In other words, you're meant to be able to walk all the way to the top. Almost 50,000 people a year attempt the summit. Not all of them make it. The intense demands on the body in ever-thinning air cause many people to give up before they can reach the peak. Did we make it? Well, what you heard of me at the start of this recording was not us reaching the actual summit, and the celebratory song and dance you're also hearing is performed for all climbers by their mountain crew regardless. What I will say is that it was hard work. Maybe the hardest thing I've ever attempted. I'll also say that it was the most rewarding. But, let's be honest, the cost can be intimidating. And without a group of people that you know to go with, and especially if you've never been to Africa before or hiked mountains of any real height before, it's exactly the kind of ambition people tend to put off year after year after year. Fortunately, here in New York's Hudson Valley, we have someone who grew up in the shadow of Mount Kilimanjaro, climbed it many times as a guide and porter in his youth, and who frequently takes small tour groups over to Tanzania, as the locals often refer to their country. His name is Protus Mayunga, and by working directly with him and recruiting a group of like-minded individuals, I was able to cut out the middleman and make the trip affordable. I'm a writer and broadcaster by trade, so I brought my recording devices along with me for the journey up the mountain. Over the course of this series, it's my hope that you'll be able to experience a little bit of what it's like to go on an adventure like this, and that by the time we're all done, you'll be ready to embark on one of your own. From Kingston to Kilimanjaro, a four-part series on a journey to the roof of Africa. Episode 1, The Planning. Nice to meet you. Welcome. Thank you. Your name? Tim. Tim. Gwendolyn. Marie. Steve. Steve. What? Tony. Tony. Nice to meet you, Simon. You just heard the five of us who went on this trip on the first day of the climb, introducing ourselves to Simon, one of our summit guides and Protus's uncle. 
Simon was on his 451st summit of the mountain. And no, you didn't mishear me. The five of us, of course, were on our very first ascent. And on the climb up and down, I asked my friends to introduce themselves and talk a little about why they chose to come on the journey. Okay, uh, so my name is Gwendolyn Alley. I currently live in Ventura, California, in Southern California, and at sea level. And uh, I'm now a long way away from sea level, but uh, I've always loved the mountains. Um, I grew up backpacking, started backpacking when I was 13, climbed my first 14er when I was 13, climbed another 14er when I was 14, climbed another one when I was 15, and by the time I was 18, I was a counselor at this camp, and every week I was leading kids up 14ers. 13ers and 14ers, by the way stand for 13 and 14,000 foot mountains, of which there are several in the western United States where Gwen grew up. And with a resume like hers, she sounds an absolute certainty to climb Mount Kilimanjaro without trouble. But all of us on this hike were now well into our 50s or beyond. And Gwen had doubts about her overall fitness as she ages. In the end, it was those very doubts that propelled her to join us. About a year and a half ago, I was thinking about the things that I wanted to do while I had the will and the ability, because I know that I'm going to have the will to do things longer than I'm going to have the ability. And uh, so I made a list, and I don't think of it as a bucket list, but a to-do list. And I strategized, and I had Kilimanjaro down for 2020. And then uh, not long after I made that list, uh, Tony told me that about this trip, and I'm like, wow, okay. Maybe I should do Kilimanjaro in 2019. And here I am. Gwen's journey from Los Angeles to Kilimanjaro, which is situated in the southeast of Africa, was 10,000 miles by air. My friend Tim took an equally long journey from a different corner of the globe. I'm a South London boy. Grew up a few streets from Tony. And uh, we shared a love of Crystal Palace and music. And we became friends. I've always wanted to go to Africa. I've got a big, deep passion for African music. Um, and I'm a trekker. And Tony said he was organising this trip. And I thought, well, why not? Let's give it a whirl. Oh, sorry, mate. And although you uh, grew up in South London, where do you live now? Sydney, uh, Blue Mountains, near Sydney, Australia. Right, so you live in the mountains. Yeah. So and we moved there. We moved to Australia 20 years ago. Right. My wife's Australian. Right. How do your mountains compare to uh, Kilimanjaro? Well, they're tiny. There's no such thing as altitude in the Blue Mountains. That lack of altitude experience was a concern for Tim. And for good reason, as you'll discover. The remaining three of us all knew each other from the running community here in the Hudson Valley. And we figured our experience on long trail runs and the occasional road marathon would put us in good stead for the cardiovascular workout we could expect on Kilimanjaro. However, Marie had never been any higher than our local Catskill Mountains, which top out at 4,000 feet. We'd be starting our ascent to Kilimanjaro from a greater height than that. In addition, Marie had had some recent health issues, which initially caused her to think twice about the trip. Ultimately, though, and much like Gwen, she turned her personal reservations into a booking reservation. Once it was proposed, of course it sounded like a fabulous idea. But the first thing I thought was like, well, yes, it's a fabulous idea, but... Not really a good time to do it because of a variety of things, but then I thought, you know, you know um, well, for me, I had a bad bike accident in 2016, 
And then last year, just about a year ago, I had a hip replacement surgery. So I'm like, well, this is the time to do it. You, know, you, can't, you can't just keep putting off big things. And so that's why, you know, I jumped on board. For his part, as well as being an experienced runner, Steve's been to Machu Picchu in Peru, a multi-day trek that took him over 14,000 feet. However, Steve was the oldest of our group, well into his 60s if he doesn't mind me saying, and that put him on the cusp of the recommended age for a climb. So, all four of my friends had reasons not to go, among them age, ability, a lack of altitude experience and recent medical issues. And that's not even counting the travel distance, the time away from family, and the cost of the trip. The fact that they all went for it regardless says plenty about their zest for life. And that kind of energy and enthusiasm is really valuable when you're halfway up the mountain, and you're tired and you're hungry and you're suffering from the thinner air. As for myself, it would be fair to say I had both elevation and running experience. I'd also been to Tanzania before. In 2016, I'd taken a year out to go on a round-the-world backpacking journey with my then-wife and our then-11-year-old son, a trip that included 10 days in mainland Tanzania. We only got to glimpse the famous flat top of Mount Kilimanjaro, but that was enough to convince me that one day I'd want to come back and climb it. And elsewhere on our travels, we did two long treks into the Himalaya, and I additionally climbed Mount Kinabalu in Borneo. Still, None of those climbs took me more than three quarters of the way up Kilimanjaro's elevation. And even at those heights, I'd felt the effects of altitude sickness. Upset stomach, a shortness of breath, and a greater stress on the body, especially when you're going uphill with a backpack. Besides, AMS, as acute mountain sickness is most commonly referred to, doesn't really care whether you've been up a mountain before. It can strike anyone, any place, any time. And while the cure is generally a simple one, just turn around and descend to a lower altitude, in its most severe form, when it translates into something known as a high-altitude edema, it can be fatal. People do die on Mount Kilimanjaro every year. But without doubt, the most important person to fly into Kilimanjaro for our climb was Protus. <laughs> you know, we went to school together. Oh, really? Yeah, we went to high school, high school together. together. Yeah. It shouldn't have come as a total surprise that Produs met an old high school friend on Mount Kilimanjaro. Although he was born in northwestern Tanzania, out by Lake Victoria, he moved in his early teens to the city of Arusha the main hub for safaris and climbs in northern Tanzania. A couple of years later, he moved further east again, to a boarding school in the shadows of Mount Kilimanjaro itself. Produs was soon asking his uncle Simon to take him along. That is how I was 14. As a porter? Yeah, as a porter. And your first time you got to the top, you were 14? No, I was uh, around uh, 15, 15 and a half-ish. Yeah. It wasn't long before Protus was regularly summiting the mountain as a guide, and it was in that capacity that an American family took an interest in him and sponsored him to come to the United States for education. He attended college in Pennsylvania, and as things go, met someone, started a family, and moved to the Catskill Mountains. 
Along the way, he started his company, The Roof of Africa Adventures, and takes people back over to Tanzania for climbs and safaris whenever possible. Within the scheme of things, Produs's company is tiny, but what he's able to offer is a more individualized, interactive, cultural experience. Most tour companies, whether you hire them in the US, Tanzania, or anywhere in between, take their cut of the fee, set you up with a crew, and you have to hope for the best. And there's an inherent disconnect with many of these crews. I saw a lot of what I call this imperial tourism when I visited Tanzania in 2016. And it's especially prevalent amongst those who fly in for safaris. Too many tourists are discouraged, even forbidden, from leaving their hotels unaccompanied. This just perpetuates a fear of the other that has no genuine basis in reality. Certainly not in a country like Tanzania, where the people are exceptionally friendly. You wouldn't be listening to this beautiful choir in the background, for example, if I hadn't left our hotel early on the first day of our climb, for a run, believe it or not, and come across a group of women singing in the backyard. When they saw me watching them, they invited me in to listen more closely and to film them without any requests in return. Produs certainly encourages his clients to get out and meet people. On the day before our climb, he joined us on a cultural walk with a local guide in the village of Marangu. Produs filled an unusual role, somewhere between client and guide, and serving as a translator for those in our crew who only spoke Swahili. He made sure we met the cook every evening and that we socialised with the porters. At the end of the trip, we all even shared a minibus back to Arusha together. All of this is important because one thing I have to say at the outset is that if your only interest in going somewhere like Kilimanjaro is to take a picture at the summit so that you can post it on social media and brag about it, please don't bother. Tanzania is a beautiful country. And there's really no point going there and spending six days on the continent's highest mountain, hopefully adding at least a couple of days in either side of the climb, if you're not willing to learn about the people and the country in the meantime. We did, didn't we? It's dinner time at the Babylon Lodge in Marangu. And true to his point about sharing aspects of his home country, Produs is making sure that we get to sample ugali, the staple starch of the Tanzanian diet. Uh, I know ugali. You know, I can put that in front of you. Corn, cornmeal. Wonderful. And, uh, and it yeah, looks, it's, it's more like a dough. It's more like a dough, exactly. Yeah. But this is, this is what I, I wanted to... Uh, We've spent our day on the culture tour, walking many miles in the process. And now, on the eve of our climb, we're about to head back to our rooms to lay out our supplies for an inspection by Protus, who wants to ensure we're carrying everything we need, and only what we need, for the next six days and five nights. The list is exhausting and far more extensive than required on my previous climbs, which admittedly were to much lower heights. In my case, it includes, for starters, an outer shell down-type jacket and an inner zip-up fleece-type top. 
I don't wear animal products, so I had to go the extra mile and find synthetic alternatives. There's several layers for the upper body. Preferably wool or synthetic, but definitely not cotton. Hiking shorts, hiking pants, rain pants, wind pants, tights, long thermal underwear, gloves, light and thick, sunglasses, capable of high UV resistance, a wide-brimmed hat for the sun and a balaclava and or beanie for the cold, various neck warmers, buffs and ski masks for the cold, thin socks, thick socks, sneakers for the evenings round camp and hiking boots, of course, for the daytime trekking, plus gaiters that go on top of those boots to keep the mountain scree out of them. We needed a poncho for rainstorms and something to protect the backpacks from rain as well. A sleeping bag capable of guarding against temperatures that might drop as low as 15 degrees Fahrenheit at night. Water bottles, ideally made of Nalgene to protect against freezing. And note the plural. We've been advised to set off with at least two litres every morning. A headlamp and extra batteries are absolutely essential. And so are trekking poles, we're told. Now, if Kilimanjaro was your first long hike, I admit, this would be a forbiddingly expensive shopping list. Fortunately, the five of us had built an outdoor wardrobe over the years, and I was able to justify purchasing those items I didn't already have, in confidence that they'll see further use in the future. Additionally, I did as a lot of people do who are looking to keep their luggage down, and rented the sleeping bag from our crew in Tanzania for about $20. All this, though, was merely the clothing. Quite apart from getting your shots in advance, there was also the list of medical supplies and toiletries. We have sunspray, sunblock. I've got some Arnicare cooling gel that I may possibly leave behind. Ibuprofen, Advil. Um, I expect to get blinding headaches uh, even if I don't get full-on altitude sickness. Ginkgo bibola. Ginkgo bibola, as I'm sure you're wondering, is a herbal alternative to Diamox, which is the prescription medicine that some people were able to get on their insurance as a means to hopefully fend off altitude sickness. I have Caladryl, um, which I kind of am tempted to leave behind because I haven't seen any mosquitoes yet at this altitude. Aloe vera, uh, again, it's in like the Caladryl, it's a new container, so it's a little heavier than I wish it was, six ounces, but going to see a lot of sun, I'm blonde. Moleskin for potential um, blisters, wet ones. A little um, bag here that's got some band-aids and um, a little bit of medical tape, some Q-tips and Neosporin. I was merrily dictating this list to my tape recorder when Tim walked in to join me and we reflected on how ridiculous it seemed to be carrying so much stuff. It's um, kind, it is kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. The charcoal caps are, you know, anti-gas detox. I mean, that's recommended. We're supposed to be farting lots up, up the hill. Farting is good for you, Farting yes. Farting is good. The Imodium tablets are for uh, similarly related things, um, for diarrhoea, which is possible, um, particularly at high altitude. Tim let me know he had some news to share. he just met a guide in the restaurant who'd returned from Kilimanjaro with his group. They didn't make it. They didn't make they it? They didn't make it. None of them? No. This is the brutal reality of Kilimanjaro. You can take a trip all the way around the world with all of these supplies and still not make it up the mountain. You realise that if you can't make it, I carry on without you. Uh, you know the same, don't right, you? Right, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what friends are for. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. But I won't take the socks off your dead feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's... So, you know, the thing that um, the guy in town was saying earlier, the Coca-Cola route, they call this mm. the easy route. 
No, that's but it's in the book. Yeah. It's in the book that it's also it's the shortest route, but because it's considered the easy route, more people don't make it because whether it's easy or hard, you're going up to the same heights. You are, and but it's also got the steepest final ascent. Yes. Oh, no, yeah. no, they all go up from the Kibo huts the no. same. No, they don't. Get the book. The book. Get Henry. Tim's book. The book we're referring to, Tim's book, is actually by Henry Stedman. It's called Kilimanjaro, The Trekking Guide to Africa's Highest Mountain, published by Trailblazer, and I recommend it above any other book on the subject. The reason we need to consult Stedman is because there are six different routes up Kilimanjaro, and I've just mistakenly suggested that they all converge at the Kibo huts and take the same slog up the side of the volcano from there. Tim is right. Although the six different routes converge on what's called the Kibo Circuit, a path that runs around the foot of the actual crater, there are three different ways to ascend, according to which route you've been taking to this point. Our route, the Marangu route, is the only one that involves staying in huts the whole way up. This ironically brings the cost down, as the porters don't have to carry camping equipment. It's also a route that can be completed in five days, though we've added an extra day for acclimatization at 12,500 feet. Morning all. How's everyone? We're very well, Tony. <laughs> Finally, it's Saturday, August the 3rd. Everyone's excited about packing up the bags, getting in the minivan, and finally starting the uphill trek. However, in Tanzania, there's a lot of what you might call hurry up and wait. Most of our crew are coming in from Arusha, which is about three hours away, and they're not setting off until they can buy the freshest food available. Once the market's open at about 8 o'clock in the morning. Once we do get to the Marangu Gate, we have a lot of time to sit around and have our packed lunch at a picnic shelter. These days, the business of taking people up Kilimanjaro is rightly regulated. Porters are not allowed to carry more than 20 kilograms each. They're supposedly paid a minimum wage, which is all of $6 a day, by the way. And there's a guaranteed number of guides per climber. And everyone on the crew is assured of proper shelter. It's all a far cry from when Protoss started out three decades ago. When I was a porter, um, we, we, we slept in the, in, in the caves. You know, a lot of companies didn't have, you know, equipment to... And of course, Kilimanjaro National Park, you know, they, they weren't really strict about, you know. So that was, that's, you know, the client stays in the tent. And we, we slept in a cave. Oh, wow. That's, you know, that's what it, you know, that's how it was. And I, one time, actually, uh, I, I don't know, something, it was something that I was left behind and I have to go back and pick it up. I couldn't get to the place where I was supposed to be, like, early enough. So I ended up just, like, you know, sleeping off a rock or something and get up in the morning and went and caught up with everybody. Uh-huh. Given this history of porters being forced to sleep in caves or even just on rocks, and by the way, the Stedman book says that several porters die every year on the mountain, as well as several clients. It was a relief to be going with a family-based company. Not only was Protus employing his uncle, Simon, the guy who first took him up the mountain, as one of our guides, but also his nephew, Lucas, a character that we get to know really, really well over the coming days. And everybody else on the crew seemed genuinely happy to be out there and on the mountain. Well, uh, last minute, like, what do I take out of the duffel bag and put in my day bag? 
The long wait at the Marangu gate gives us a chance to reevaluate our bag distribution for the day. The deal is that climbers carry our own day packs, in which the water will probably be our heaviest item, and the porters carry everything else, delivering our larger bags with toiletries and our other clothes at camp when we arrive. The picnic shelter has a number of displays about Kilimanjaro, and Tim quickly hones in on that of the local Chaga people's legends about the volcano's formations. The two peaks, Moenzi and Kibo, are brothers. Kibo is the bigger, but younger brother. One day, while smoking their pipes, Moenzini's fire went out. He asked his brother Kibo if he could borrow some fire. And then he went to sleep. Fire went out again. Kibo became angry, beat him so badly that even today, no one can, one can see his battered and torn face. Oh my God. <laughs> the Chaga legend is endearing, but a geological explanation is probably more useful here. Mount Kilimanjaro is actually a volcano, or more precisely, three volcanoes, the youngest of which, Kibo, is the only one that still looks and acts like a volcano. That's the snow-capped flat peak that we all recognise from pictures as such, and the one that we are ascending, of course. Kibo emerged from the Great Rift Valley 460,000 years ago, making it a baby in terms of geological history, and it sits inside an absolutely vast caldera, or crater, that was itself formed when the oldest of the three volcanoes, Shira, collapsed in upon itself after a brief existence of around a quarter million years. There's still a Shira peak off to the west of Kilimanjaro, but it's dwarfed both by Kibo and by Mwenzi, which at 5,149 metres is Africa's third highest. However, Mwenzi, which is instantly recognisable just east of Kibo, has eroded over the years, to form what's now a highly distinctive and frighteningly forbidding jagged ridge of volcanic teeth that's summited only by accomplished mountaineers. Continued volcanic activity by Kibo itself over the last 460 millennia has produced the obsidian scree that forms its steep sides and has also created several parasitic craters, as they're called, that form a line across the ridge. One of these craters, well over a kilometre wide, sits inside the plateau on the mountain top itself and even contains its own ash cone, the result of volcanic activity just over 200 years ago. Throughout this crater, what are called fumaroles, that's volcanic vents, emit sulfuric steam. Officially, Mount Kilimanjaro is considered dormant, but that's a far cry from being inactive. We're just looking here at the records, the, the, uh, the running records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's gone from... Uh... For all of the geological and cultural history, I'm most taken by a display of the climbing records. In 2014, Carl Egloff ran our route from the Marangu Gate to the Uhuru Peak in just 4 hours 56 minutes. You could argue that because the distance is less than that of a road marathon, just under 23 miles on Marangu, that such a time is entirely feasible. But we'd be taking 5 days to cover the distance. Carl Egloff would appear to have had some assistance, so it's only fair to mention Tanzanian Simon Matui, who in 2006 ran up the Umbwe route and down Maweka in 9 hours 21 minutes, entirely unsupported. The mention of the other routes takes us to an encased three-dimensional display of the mountain, which provided the clearest evidence I saw in my entire stay of the summit's various approach roads. Marangu, our chosen route, is not just the only one with huts, but it's one of just two designated descent routes, the other one being Maweka. You can't actually go up Maweka, so our route is also the only one that's the same for both ascent and descent. 
Get sweat, get sweat. Are we starting? Get sweat, get sweat. On your mark, get set, go. On your mark, yeah, Finally, at around two in the afternoon, the crew arrives from Arusha, and not only does that mean the porters can pick up our bags, but we can be assigned our guides. Not counting Protus, we've got at least three of them throughout our climb up the mountain for the five of us. There's only one thing left to do before we can set off. Let's, let's get a, a picture here together. On our day one. Okay. Okay. Day one, day one. Here, here. I've never considered myself a tourist in any conventional sense, but I have to say, Kilimanjaro just begs to be photographed. All of it. Everybody say Kili. Kili. Pole pole. Pole pole. Adam Quinn's not ready. The phrase pole pole translates as slowly, slowly. You hear it all the time going up the mountain. A reminder that the only real way to deal with the altitude gain is to take it step by step. Superhuman athletes aside, Killy cannot be rushed. This all-important point is proven by a small group of young French women who we just met at the picnic table after their descent. They complain of dizziness, nausea, actual vomiting up at the summit, and at least one of them didn't make it to Uhuru Peak. As far as we can tell, they didn't fully grasp the gravity of their undertaking. Who knows whether we will make it either, but at least we prepared. Indeed, it's over two years now since I first began recruiting people to go on this adventure. Almost a year since three of us booked our plane tickets. And it feels like it's been a lifetime of research, of shopping, of training, packing and travelling. Our afternoon hike ahead seems friendly enough, but we genuinely don't know what lies in store beyond that. Still, we are here. And in five days, we hope to be there, on the roof of Africa. Episode 2. The Ascent. Akuna Matata, a phrase you'll probably recognize if you've ever watched The Lion King, is Swahili for no problems, no worries. You can hear your guides and the crew singing it as you slog your way up the mountain. They're trying to assure you it's easy. I can assure you it's not. Still, as months and months of preparation, of reading, of shopping, of training, of long-distance travel, then at 2pm on Saturday, August the 3rd, we finally set off to climb the mountain from a base altitude of 1,905 metres, or 6,250 feet. Ahead of us is a relatively comfortable climb of around 2,700 feet over five miles. It's certainly the easiest we can expect on our four-day ascent, which will hopefully take us all the way to the summit. Very, very lush here, isn't it? This is like, it's not, it's not the Catskills, it's more... More like rainforest. More, yeah. This is the montane forest, is that the it? Monta- yes. Yeah. One of the many attributes that makes Kilimanjaro not just fascinating, but indeed unique, is that it has a multitude of distinct microclimates, or zones. There are six of them, if you want to include the farmland that sits below the Marangu Gate. 
We're setting off from the first officially distinguished one, Montane Forest. On Kilimanjaro, this forest extends from approximately 2,500 feet all the way up to about 9,000 feet above sea level and receives the most rainfall on the mountain, around 6 to 8 feet a year. This means it's not only incredibly verdant, but also humid, and we've barely started climbing before some amongst our five-strong group asked to stop and strip off layers. Well, we got about five minutes in without stopping. <laughs> Talk about pole, pole, that's a good start. <laughs> pole, pole means slowly, slowly, and we appear to have taken that catchphrase to heart. The actual trail we're walking on this first day is nothing unfamiliar. But because we're in Africa, because we're at this altitude, and because this forest gets so much rain, the flora is utterly unique. Among the trees growing to our left and right and at times overhanging above us are eucalyptus, figs, avocado, mango trees, African redwood, African holly, tree ferns, and mahogany. The mahogany found on Kilimanjaro is actually the tallest indigenous tree in all of Africa. It can grow over 80 meters high, that's 250 feet, and some have been dated as five or 600 years old, with no signs of dying as yet. We weren't in this particular patch of giant and ancient mahogany, but it provides a great example of the Kilimanjaro montane forest's incredibly vibrant ecosystem. I used the opportunity of our first day of relatively comfortable hiking to talk more about our mountain adventure with Protus, who you may recall from the previous episode, grew up on the mountain as a porter and guide before being sponsored by an American family for a university education in the United States. Protus now lives in the Catskills, and he takes groups over the Kilimanjaro and for Tanzanian safaris as frequently as he can through his company, The Roof of Africa Adventures. All told, how many people do we have in our crew? Uh, I don't, I will get the total number from, uh, you know, when we get to, I'll give you oh, the total. So you don't, you're not even sure? I'm not, I'm not even <laughs> sure because uh, I, I was just hearing there's some extra weight, so we have to get extra people. Oh, really? From there, yeah. So, so there was extra weight from, but not from our individual bags? Yeah, from just the, the, the food. Right, the, right. Yeah. The additional porters are needed because of regulations put into effect relatively recently that limit the amount of weight that each porter can carry to 20 kilograms, approximately 50 pounds. That's the maximum check-in weight for an international flight. In other words, it's still a lot to carry, all the way up the mountain, on your back. It's not until we get down the mountain a few days later and distribute tips that we're able to do a full count. There's 19 in all. If that sounds like a lot of manpower, and yes, they're all male, to take five of us up the mountain, well, I guess you're right. And there are those who object to paying wages for and tipping porters that they never see on the mountain itself. But apart from having four guides for the five of us, there's the cook and his assistant, and all that food and equipment, as well as our overnight bags with all our summit clothing, plus medical supplies and emergency oxygen, needs to be transported every day, except for summit day itself. And even then we need porters, just in case. We call them summit porters. Right. Uh, because if somebody gets sick and, you know, right. somebody needs to come down, we, you know, usually just bring extra people just to be safe. Uh, I'm aware from setting up our trip with Protus that he usually takes his clients up the Machami route, which comes in from the southwest, requires camping, 
and is now apparently the most popular of them all. It's only when Prolus observes the improvements in the Marangu Trail, the one that we're taking, that I learn just how long it's been since he's last stepped on it. So what was the last year you did Marengo? It was in, uh, I'm telling you, it was in 1998. Right, so 20, 21 years ago. Yeah. Wow. 20 years ago. Uh, sorry, I had to remind you. Yeah. Back when you were five. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> this puts Protus in something of a unique position. He's arranged the trip. He's hired his usual crew, a superb group of people. And having made it to the Uhuru summit well over 100 times, he's well versed in getting people to the top. But it's so long since he's been on the Marangu route that to some extent he's operating as another client. Have you done every route? Yes, I have. Yeah, every, I have done all of them. All of them. Which, um, I know Machami is the one you like to take people up, but from a personal... I like the, the, the Mosho. The Mosho is like... It's, it's more... Um, I don't know, I guess you just... It's, again, they're all similar, really. Like, to be quite <laughs> right. But the Mosho is my favorite. The Mosho. Uh, the Mosho and Machami is the second. Right. The third. Uh, Umbwe route is now my favorite at all. It's very, you know, you start up like this. Oh, okay. All the way up. Oh, right. Hard. All the way up, yeah. Huh. That's not my favorite. Long guy where those French guys were yeah. going. That, um, that's also nice. Yeah. You, know. you need a map of Kilimanjaro to really figure out what we're talking about here. But in short, there are routes that come in from the northwest, the southwest, the southeast, that's ours, Marangu, and the northeast, that's Rongai, the one that we just referred to. Rongai used to come in from Kenya, but the start point has been changed to ease those international crossing issues. The Umbwe route, the one that Proda says he doesn't like, comes in pretty much directly from the south. It's by far the steepest, but it's also the shortest. And if you're a mountain goat, and some people are, that's the way to go. It's the route that Simon Intui took in 2006 for what is still the fastest unsupported run up and down Mount Kilimanjaro. Nine hours and 21 minutes. Simon runs his own travel company for Kilimanjaro Climbs. And I guess there's a pun intended there. Because if you want to take the mountain at pace, Simon is probably a man. The last route to mention is Maweka, which is used for descent only from when you come up the three western routes. Because Marangu is the only one of the routes in which you go up and down the same way, and because you stay in huts the whole way as well, there's a perception that it's easy. When we were at the waterfall yesterday, one of the guys there was saying, oh, you're taking the Coca-Cola route. <laughs> and we call it that because it's a soft drink. It's soft. It's easy. Yeah, but, but it's not. It's not, is it's, it? It's really not. And it's got the highest rate of failure. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, probably it's, because people think it's like, oh, it's in the People take it, exactly. People take it lightly. Okay. And uh, yeah. they come and they... I'll tell you, Tony, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people... Mountaineers, we're talking about, you know, people yeah. down like maybe the seven summits and all that. Yeah, yeah. They come here and they're like, huge, you know, they give a huge respect because it's, yeah. it's not what they, you know, what they read, what they, right. Know. I mean, you're here now, you know, you can. Yeah. <laughs> We're in it. We're going to do it. Yeah. We'll be talking. <laughs> On the eighth, you can tell me if it was easier. Do you mean easier than uh, than you know than you anticipated? Maybe you know. It's... I'm expecting summit morning to be what the hardest thing I've ever done. 
I'm going to interrupt here for a spoiler alert. It was indeed the hardest thing I've ever done. The grade that we're doing, the gradient, uh, to, to Gilman's. Yeah. From his Kibo hut. From Kibo hut. Yeah, that's serious. It is, it is, yeah. And we're doing it at night, and we're doing it at high altitude. Yeah. I'm expecting, like, Manitou's Revenge to look very, very easy in comparison. Manitou's Revenge is an ultramarathon run every June in the Catskills. It's 54 miles a little longer than the distance up and down the Marangu route. And it's got 15,000 foot of total climbing that has to be completed in under 24 hours, as opposed to the four days we have to climb 13,000 feet on Kilimanjaro. I've done Manitou's once, and while you have to be trained for it in a way that doesn't apply out here in the Marangu route, I'll confirm now that compared to the attempted summit of Kilimanjaro, it was indeed easier. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're still three days away from attempting our climb up to Gilman's Point, which is the rim of the crater, and then onto the summit, Uhuru Peak, from there. The good news is that, for all that we've met some people who didn't make it that far, we're constantly meeting those who did. Did you make it? We did. Congratulations. Oh yeah, we made it. (laughs) (laughs) I in turn made a prediction that that guy was going straight to the shop at the Marangu Gate and rewarding himself with a beer. Alcohol consumption is absolutely not recommended on the climb up. Not in this kind of thin air. And none of us even as much as discuss the possibility. Although, on the subject of alcohol... My son has the, uh, the nickname of whiskey. Whiskey, you know, because as you know, whiskey is stronger than coffee. Right, <laughs> right. So, but... They're all, they're all the same, you know? Yeah, they're all going to be hard in their own way. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Whatever your preference, whiskey or Coca-Cola, Machami or Marangu, your first day's hike is not going to be too taxing. After a few hours steady walk, including a stop for a packed lunch, chatting and getting to know our crew as we go, we find ourselves at our first night's destination. So we're here, this is our first stop, Mandara Hut, elevation 2,720 metres, which is about 8,300 feet. Climbed about 26 or 2,800 feet, I believe, today. And we're kind of just getting a break in the tree line here. The break I'm referring to is really quite a distinct one. It's almost like there's a line drawn on the contour of the mountain. One moment you're in the forest, the next moment you're in what's known as the Alpine Heath. The Mandara huts are situated right where these two points meet and gives us a sense of what we can expect tomorrow when, according to the sign that we pose for pictures by, we have an 11-kilometre walk up to the Horombo huts. Tonight we'll be sleeping in dorms and for whatever reason, we get an entire building to ourselves. Asante. So guys, maybe the boys are bring water washing for you. Yeah. Thank you. Our porters bring each of us our bags. We'll have the same porter every day. So I get to know my guy. He's called Idi. Asante Idi. Asante. The porters also prepare a bucket of warm water for us with some soap so that we can clean off before dinner. Okay. Corn, corn, sweet corn. Sweet corn. Okay. These meals will follow a pretty predictable pattern. There's going to be soup to start. I get a vegan one every evening, more than I need for myself, so I'm always happy to share it. 
And our main course is going to be vegetables with some meat or fish off to the side, usually accompanied by some form of starch, pasta or rice. And dessert is typically fresh fruit. I learned from my previous trip to Tanzania that the locals eat local, which means they eat healthily. Guys, this is Barnabas, one of the guys. Hello, Barnabas. And of course, Lucas. Lucas, uh, Barnabas, Gwen, Tim, Marie, Steve, and Tony. Okay. Uh, Sure, there are some language difficulties with our guides and porters. Although English is taught from high school onwards, for a lot of people in Tanzania, that's too late to grasp the language. I'll get to know Bonabas really well over the next few days, just as I will Produs's uncle Simon, who turns out to be something of a legend on Kilimanjaro, his nephew Lucas, and Ngozi. They will be the four primary guides, taking us all the way up the mountain. For our first night on Kilimanjaro, we get an entire dorm building to ourselves. Steve and Marie bed down in one room, and the rest of us in another. We should be in for a good night's sleep. So Gwen, how are you feeling this morning, our, our first full morning on the trail? Well, my body feels great, but you know, the not sleeping thing is really... You had a bad night? <sighs> Do you think it's it? So I, I didn't have a great night either. Do you know what to put that down to? Uh, I don't know. For me, it was that I got... We should all be seasoned campers here. And Gwen and I met at Burning Man, which is not exactly quiet during the nocturnal hours. But we're also just getting used to each other. Turns out we're dealing with that unpleasant marital noise demon among other things that go bump in the night. I realized I probably should put on my earplugs for people going through the door. So I went down and I got my earplugs and then climbing back up into the bunk, I hit my head, totally whacked out my glasses and had a massive headache. So I was just lying there on my back with this headache <laughs> and it receded and I put in the earplugs and then I got to sleep and then there was the snoring with the earplugs and then you know everybody was coming but to be out. but to be fair you must have felt like like you were yeah felt just like home being at home yeah except for Marshall I can kick and I can get him to roll up it was probably a little optimistic for Gwen to think she could come to Tanzania and get away from snoring at night ah well Let's just say none of us got a lot of sleep going up and down the mountain. Peanut butter, banana, thank you. Asante sana, just take this. Yeah, peanut butter, banana. Sleeplessness is somewhat to be expected. And so is an upset stomach of some sort. It's not uncommon when you come to a different country, however healthy the food. At high altitude, though, the queasiness is more acute. I mean, I don't want to be too graphic, but getting the runs is really not unusual. That situation is not helped by the fact that your crew is constantly giving you food. I'm really trying not to overeat. I'm used to trekking with like cliff bars and things, and um, I'm not used to sitting down and having a big lunch halfway through a day's trek. Or... Fortunately, we haven't been on the moorland for long before we get a welcome distraction from our sleeplessness and or queasy stomachs. So we already saw Mawenzi, but this is our first sighting of Kibo. That's, that's the Kibo. 
Kibo. It's the name given to the standalone volcano with the ice and snow near its summit that most of us recognise from photographs as Kilimanjaro, the roof of Africa. It's magnificent to see it with the naked eye. And it's one of those optical illusions that uh, Mwenzi looks higher from here, but it's not. Yeah, just it's, it's closer. Not. Yeah, just it's, it's really phys- closer. physically closer. Once you hit the top, you'll be looking Mwenzi yeah. below. But that's what we're going to. I hear you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's impressive, all right. Yeah. And it still looks a long way away, Perlis. <laughs> yes. We got that's it. not far at all. <laughs> Gwen's not being facetious, and she's kind of right. The base of the volcano is probably just about 10 miles away. The summit, on the other hand, we can't yet see that. And that mountain, that volcano slope, it really does look steep. But hey, it's why we're here. Do you get like some feeling of homecoming every time you see that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Is it like a nice feeling for you every time it's, you it's see It's definitely, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really do enjoy. I do enjoy being here, you know. I wish I could be here all the time. Yeah. I wish this could be my office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Protus. At this point, on our first truly full day on the mountain, with some gain to our name but no real pain as yet, there's no place I'd rather be. It's truly gorgeous out here. And the company's not bad either. That's Mount Maru over there. Mount Maru? Yes. Okay. Mount Maru! I love hearing a London accent here. <laughs> Yours has not been tainted by years of living in Australia or America. You're just like straight out of Hertfordshire. <laughs> it's a real deal, right? Oh, yes, I have indeed. I've, I've decided as well. I'm going to say Early on this, our second day, Tim and I recognised some English accents coming up from behind us. It's a group of five young women wearing matching sporting shirts. Hearing their voices, we pass comment. They tell us they all live in Doha, Qatar, and of course they've decided to come climb the mountain together. When we ask about their uniforms, one of them's quick to test our gullibility. We're the British Olympic netball team, she says. And before I can say, then why are you all living in Qatar? Tim falls for it and starts gushing his admiration. The five young women are all actually working in the medical profession out in Qatar. And all five of them have got a distinct look despite wearing the same sports shirt. So Tim and I label them the Spice Girls. They take it in very good spirits and adopt the name. They're on the same schedule as us up and down the mountain. And for Tim and myself especially, they become more than just our regular companions. They'll become our mates. That's one of the things I want to stress about doing a journey like this. You make new friends along the way, regardless of whether you've come with friends of your own. Maybe you'll never speak to them again. Or maybe, as in our case... You swap social media information and you keep tabs on each other once you return to your home countries. Leah, she's the one who fooled us in the first place and you can hear mostly on this conversation. Elle, Emily, Katie and a Scottish girl, Nicola, that we can hardly understand. And I'm half Scottish, by the way. They all provide a daily boost of youthful exuberance for Tim and myself. And in the good-natured way that I'd like to believe we have in our home country. We engage in some mutual ribbing as we go. What do you think of my new sporty look? Yeah, I like it actually. You've got the hero, you've got the, the pimp sticks. <laughs> the pimp sticks? Yeah, you've got the pimp sticks. i got the cycling glasses and sleeves. Exactly. And the Lawrence of Arabia hat. I'm all over the place. You're the gadget Mixed. man. That's his nickname. 
Gadget man. I'll take that. Gadget man. I wouldn't normally refer to myself as Gadget Man, but considering that I've got tape recorders in one hand and a GoPro on my head, that explains the poor audio in this clip, by the way. I guess the nickname's well earned. Over the course of this second day, we gain elevation of almost exactly 1,000 metres, which, if you know your conversion rates, you'll know to be just a little below 3,300 feet. This is across a distance of around seven and a half, seven and three quarter miles, so the elevation gain itself is not too steep. We set off, as stated, in the Alpine Heath, a heather zone, but as we climb, so the surroundings change with us. Man-sized trees give way to man-sized heather, which switches out to a grassy scrubland, pockled with occasional brightly coloured flowers, like gladiola, orchids and red-hot pokers. There are birds hanging around too, especially at the lunchtime picnic tables, where there's one raven in particular that's especially keen to have our leftovers. As we climb higher though, a couple of plants come to dominate the landscape. The rather phallic lobelia, and the even more imposing giant ground cells, which routinely reach a height of 4 metres. Both these distinctive plants appear to the untrained eye as a form of cacti, which would seem to make sense given that the land here is absent the rains that fall in such abundance in the forest below. According to John Reader's renowned book of photos and essays from the early 1980s, they're actually related to the common weed, among 55 plant species that back then had been identified on the mountain. That's not, apparently, a high number for such a large area as this. But then Kilimanjaro, especially once you're above the tree line, is not exactly hospitable to life. We've been promised that when we turn the corner here, we can see the camp, which means we'll be at about 12,200 feet. And the truth is, yeah. We can see the camp. We can see now. Barnabas does not lie. Yeah. I'm not lying here. Here we are. We can see our camp. Yes. We can see the valley below. Yeah. We can almost see Kibo, but it's just gotten shrouded. And the valley below is pretty beautiful. We are now well above the clouds. And you can hear in my voice but the elevation is taking its toll. So even though we're here, we're trudging slowly up the last little bit to the reception. Maybe just another 100 feet we didn't expect to gain. As we close in on the Harambo huts, I review the day's climb with Gwen and Marie. Marie has never been higher than 5,000 feet or so before but she seems totally unfazed by the gain in altitude. It wasn't as steep as yesterday, but we did a lot more elevation. But we had, it, a, we I had mean, a lot more of these traverses. Like, yeah, I mean, it's more gradual, so it yeah. actually feels, it was feel, felt better today. So, you know, little bits and pieces, it felt, I could feel it. Well, there's the steep and then flat and then steep. And yes, flat. and sometimes we had the down, and then so it was like a down in the elevation. It was like great, you know, they just vibes you, or me. The Harumbo huts are by far the most comfortable of the three camps we'll stay at on our way up and down Kilimanjaro. But at the same time, comfort's relative. Like most people here, at least those who aren't intense, we're staying in tiny A-frames with just about enough room for one person to get dressed at any one time. Mm. Alright, this is cosier than last night. It sure is. 
But hey, there are other people who are camping and that's cozier still. So, this is good. I'm sure we are good. Unfortunately, we're not good. At least not all of us. Tim may be putting on a brave voice, but he's suffering from acute mountain sickness. All of us are feeling it to some extent, and Tim tries his best to be cheerful, as I joke about the fact that we all seem to be suddenly very untogether. Yeah. <laughs> the altitude got we're, to us all. We're a little giddy. I, I, Tim uh, is queasy. Gwen like like is uh, wondering why it sounds like the dwarf. hot water doesn't taste yeah. of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I do have a good tea, queasy or not, I have a, quite a good tea story. Tell us a good tea story. Tim recounts his story, but the colour is draining from his face as he does so. Prolus tries to encourage him to eat. He's going to need the fuel for the next few days. But Tim just stares at his plate. He's taking the Diamox, the prescribed drug to prevent and combat AMS. And maybe it's helping, who knows. But fact is... He sits at the end of the table, looking increasingly morose, and I turn off the tape recorder in respect. He and I go out afterwards for some fresh air, and we stand at the sunset, looking at the tents being set up below us for those who are descending via the Marangu route, watching over the clouds that extend all the way to the horizon. Parasitic craters line our view in something of a straight line. It's a magnificent sight. We should be feeling on top of the world. Tim is anything but. Photographs I take of him show as much. He's flown 8,600 miles from Sydney in the hope of summiting Mount Kilimanjaro. But at this point, it's obvious he just wants to start descending already. For Tim, this may sadly be as far as he goes. Episode 3 The Summit We were sent to bed at 8pm last night and told we'd be woken at 6.30 and it's like, really? Since, since when was I four years old again? <laughs> <laughs> But no, we all, but you we know, all managed 10 hours tonight we're going to get, you know, two-fifths of whatever sleep Yeah. yeah before, no, before we do probably the hardest climb of our lives. Absolutely the hardest climb of our lives. It's sunrise on the morning of Tuesday, August the 6th, and along with my friend Tim, I'm looking down on Africa from the Horombo Huts at a height of 12,200 feet. Somewhere another 7,000 feet, over 2,000 metres above us, is the real roof of Africa, the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And around 24 hours from now, we hope to be standing on it. All that remains between us and that goal is 10 miles of uphill climbing, every single step leading us into ever thinner air. From Yuhuru Peak, assuming we make it, we will turn around for a rapid descent all the way back to the Horombo huts. It's just as well we were sent to bed at 8pm. That Tim is joining us on this long 24-hour climb is actually great news. If you heard the last episode, you'll know that at the end of our two days of initial trekking, 
Tim, who had travelled all the way from Sydney, Australia to join us, had come down with a severe case of AMS, acute mountain sickness. He'd never been to a hike like this before. And though that was also true of Marie and our group, the thin air had hit him like a gale-force wind. Queasy, woozy, generally unsettled, by the time he went to bed that Sunday evening, after a group dinner at which he just stared at his food, he was seriously considering whether he needed to quit already. Fortunately, this was where our planning kicked in. We'd added what's called an acclimatisation day. And after we set off this Tuesday morning on a 10k, 1,000 metre climb to the Kibo huts, from where we will hopefully tackle the summit, I recounted the previous day into my faithful Zoom recorder. We all went on a hike to go to a higher elevation so we could get a little more experience with a lot less air. And then, you know, you come down, so you climb high and sleep low, which is always what's recommended and what you can't really achieve on any other day on this trek. Some of us, a couple of us wanted to keep going. We were very, very concerned as well for Tim, who'd been suffering a lot on the climb up. So we split into two groups. And uh, the one other group, they still climbed up from Zebra Rock. They get up to a viewpoint, which I'm, I'm told was incredibly impressive. They could see the work ahead of them for today and tomorrow. And two of us went further up. It's uh, the Mwenzi route. It's a longer way of going up or down to the Kibo huts, but it takes you to this vista when you reach the saddle and you can see uninterrupted because the weather's so clear up here above the clouds. Mwenzi off to the right and Kibo off to the left and both of them just looking stunning. And as people have surely read and understand, it's like a moonscape at that point. You're up in the Alpine Desert, meaning you're in a kind of like, essentially what it says, you're in a desert at 14,000 feet. It's evident that people just don't use the Mwenzi route. It wasn't well-traveled. It was just incredible tranquility. Everything's beautiful. When Gwen and I came down from our extended hike, we found a fully rejuvenated and successfully acclimatized Tim sitting outside our A-frame with Stephen Marie taking turns to read the classic Ernest Hemingway short story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which Tim had brought with him on a tablet specifically for such an occasion. Perhaps a little affected by the thin air and the sun myself, I got thoroughly burned all over my face during this day. I neglected to turn on my tape recorder. But you know, sometimes the greatest memories are best preserved the old-fashioned way, in the mind alone. Well, we're back on African time. We're back on African time? Yeah. What time is it? 7.15. Ah, uh, we're okay, right? Eight. Yeah, by 8, we're good. By, by 8, we should Half an hour for breakfast, 15 minutes to, to brush finish your teeth. up. Yeah. We've been told to assemble in the dining room at 6.45am. When breakfast comes out a solid 30 minutes later, it's obvious that we're behind schedule once more. Then again, we are making something of a meal of it. Listen, somebody must have done with your bits and porridge. No, it can't be it. I can't have invented. You, you've just invented a new thing. I invented a breakfast. Mountain food. Mountain food breakfast. A real breakfast of champions where no soy milk is available. 
Did you try peanut butter in it? No. Disgusting. You're so American. (laughs) It seems to me we could do with some bullying to keep us on track. Especially because at a high altitude like this, we're not exactly coordinated. I'll join you guys. Okay. So 8.30, that's okay. (laughs) Shall we walk? Where's Pro... um, Where's your... Lucas has got it. Yeah, he may do, but did you not just see Protus at your... At your yeah, uh, he told me Lucas had my stuff. OK. All right, well, well we're, not leaving without you. we're not leaving without you, Tim, and he's leaving. Lucas will leave with us. Yeah. Oh, small matter of poles. And my poles, yeah. <laughs> and my poles as well. A very small matter of my poles. As we ascend from the Harombo huts on today's 10-kilometre, six-miles walk, we soon leave the moorland behind, and with it, the last real visible signs of life. The vegetation thins away almost entirely, leaving just what are rightly called everlastings, some of them surprisingly colourful. Off in the distance, at the very top of the volcano, we can see the snows of Kilimanjaro, at least what's left of them. Right. So how does this compare to what you know in your life? Uh, it's definitely some... Uh... A huge decrease of the glaciers. I remember in uh, 1993, okay, we up there? Uh, that mountain was pretty much covered in the snow. And those glaciers were, I mean, they were huge. Right. So it's definitely some like global warming is, it has some thing to do with it. It's, it's, so in 93, yeah, we did what we're looking at now, coming up from the south, and we can see three or four of the trails. That would all have had a white coating. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, it would have the whole white coating. Okay. Yeah. Hans Mayer, the German who initially tried to summit Kilimanjaro in 1887, marched through snowdrifts two meters deep on the saddle, the name given to the windswept barren stretch between Kibo and Mwenzi that we will spend much of our day hiking through and beyond. His climb was abandoned when he came up against a sheer wall of ice just below the crater rim, estimating it to be at least 60 metres or 200 feet thick at all points. When Mayer returned two years later, better prepared for what turned out to be the first successful summit of Kibo, he noted a significant retreat in the ice line all around the mountain. That retreat has continued apace over the subsequent 130 years. And it seems all too likely that in my own lifetime, the ice will disappear from this southern face entirely. It would be easy to put this all down to global warming, and climate change is certainly having a dramatic impact on East Africa. But it's important to understand that Kilimanjaro, being the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, has its own utterly unique climate system. The volcano is subject to two competing trade winds, one that blows in from the southeast and brings what are called the long rains from March to May. Another that comes in from the northeast and brings what are called the short rains in November and December. Given that I've already made much of the fact that we've been looking down on the clouds, that begs the question as to how snow falls on the summit in the first place. For that, you can thank what are called the anti-trade winds, which carry no precipitation but blow fiercely across the saddle from the northeast between May and October as we can testify on this August mid-morning. So we've reached this little breach with the saddle here. We're probably a bit lower than we topped out at yesterday, me and Gwen. You can hear me 
putting on my Innovate Storm Shell. And I think we're going to need it as we go down into this unprotected area where basically the wind will cut across. It's when these anti-trade winds drop in force that they push the cloud-bearing southeastern trade winds above them and up the slopes of Kilimanjaro, from where those will drop snow on the summit. You can often see clouds shroud the volcano from a distance, and today, sure enough, by mid-morning, we're in the thick of them. Exactly a year ago, Protus brought a group to Kilimanjaro that had to trek through snow on the crater to reach the Uhuru Peak. Nobody in our crew can predict whether today's clouds will also rise up and drop precipitation on what we otherwise understand to be a currently snowless summit. Now, as to why these massively thick layers of ice are receding from the crown of the volcano and from within the crater itself. Well, there's widespread scientific acknowledgement that the melting of Kilimanjaro's glaciers is not directly due to increased greenhouse gases. The flat white surface of the ice is adept at reflecting sunlight back into the atmosphere, even the increasingly unprotected sunlight that we're experiencing with global warming. It's the heating up of the ground beneath that causes the ice to melt, slowly, from the bottom up. This explains the giant overhangs of the ice cliffs that we'll hopefully encounter on the crater if we successfully summit the rim tomorrow morning. What I'm really looking forward to seeing is those ice peaks, the sort of ice sculptures. Yes. Um, I don't know how close we get to them on our trek. Yeah, we'll see how everybody's feeling, you know. We usually uh, give people the options if, you know, they're feeling strong and uh, they want to get closer. We'll be able to do that. As for how long the glaciers have been around and how rapidly they're disappearing, well, geologists estimate that Kilimanjaro has often been barren of ice, and perhaps for as long as 10 to 100,000 years at a time, which could in part have been due to fiery volcanic activity. The current glaciation most likely took place during the last major ice age, about 10,000 years ago, and although occasionally reinforced by mini ice ages, There was one between around 1400 and 1700 AD. The Thames froze over in London. The glaciers have been subject to steady retreat over the millennia. That's not to question the rapid rate of global warming or mankind's contribution to it. Fully half of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since that last little ice age ended has occurred in just the last four decades. And the four hottest years on record all occurred in the last half decade. So while Kilimanjaro may not be a perfect poster child for global warming, it's certainly impacted. There's less snow falling so as to replenish the glaciers, and there's a reported increase in sublimation, which is when the ice skips the melting process and merely evaporates. With East Africa having experienced severe droughts in recent years, these particular factors are having an effect not just up top of Kilimanjaro, but on the farming valleys that surround the mountain. Just reached the last water stop. Not for us, because the way it works is the porters are gathering the water for us. Kilimanjaro supplies the water for those incredibly lush, fertile farmlands, arable lands we saw down in Marangu. And the receding glaciers are a problem for that. The long, slow day of climbing across what you can hear is a very, very windy saddle gives us a chance to get to better know our guides and our porters. What is your name? Elias. Elias? Yes. And do you mind if I ask how old you are? 
I'm now 38. Okay. Yes. And you used to play soccer, football, professional? Foot yes, football. Tell me, who did you play for? Uh, we used to play for a national team. For Tanzania, Tanzania yeah. national team? Yes, Taipa Stars. And what's your last name, alas? About uh, seven what's years ago. Okay. Yes. You played about seven years ago? Yes. And how many years were you in the national team? Only for two years. Two years? Yeah. What position? A striker. Striker. Did you score for the Tanzania national yes. team? Yes. How but many uh, times? But not, uh, not good as uh, uh, my other colleagues. His modesty aside, Elias has a claim to greatness, especially for Tim and myself, who are avid fans of Crystal Palace and are busy trying to convert our crew to the cause. Elias tells us that his favourite goal he scored, several years ago now, was against Kenya, Tanzania's neighbours and bitter rivals. The last uh, uh, cup, uh, African Cup yeah. of Nations, yeah. Yeah. we had a very, very big tension between Kenya and Tanzania because they are neighbours. Yeah, sure. Sometimes they beat us, sometimes yeah. we beat them. Yeah. That most recent Africa Cup of Nations took place just a few weeks before we visited. Tanzania and Kenya had been drawn in the same group. On this occasion, Kenya won. The two teams otherwise lost all their games. They had the misfortune to come up against the two countries that would make it all the way to the final. Algeria and Senegal, in case you were wondering. What does all this have to do with our climb? Everything, really. Part of the reason for travelling, even if you have a goal like a mountain summit, has to be to get to know the people, the country, the culture and the customs. And there is no greater leveller across the whole wide world than football. All right, soccer. The rivalry between Tanzania and Kenya extends to Mount Kilimanjaro itself. The border, like so many in Africa, was created arbitrarily by European colonists. What we now call Tanzania was ruled by the Germans and then the British before gaining independence in 1961 and merging with Zanzibar in 1964. So we're maybe at the halfway point between Horombo and Kibo. And uh, we just had, unfortunately, one of the wheelbarrow, the long kind of wheelbarrow-style stretches. Passes coming downhill. Somebody wrapped up so tight at first, I wasn't sure that there was someone inside there. But there is. And I guess the odds are it is altitude sickness. Hopefully nothing worse, because altitude sickness at least descend and it will... Hopefully, that will hopefully be the cure. The sight of a wheelbarrow stretching somebody off the mountain was a stark reminder that all of us were heading into uncharted territory. Heights above 14,000 feet are officially recognised as very high altitude, and the odds of getting a pulmonary edema, a serious and sometimes fatal illness, run as high as 15% amongst even healthy people who spend time above this altitude. That's why, 24 hours from now, we hope to be on a rapid descent back to the Harombo huts. It was there, yesterday, that we'd met a group descending from the Rongai route. They were young, American, looked fit, and some of them had even trained in the Rockies. And yet they'd had a terrible, terrible time of it, every one of them requiring emergency oxygen from their crew. But when we talked in more detail with them, it turned out they hadn't even considered an acclimatisation day. It didn't seem to have crossed their radar. They weren't taking Diamox either. Although then again, neither was I. Chances are, 
they just ascended the mountain too fast. But again at the Harombo huts, I'd been chatting with a young guy, Menachem, from Long Island, studying out at UCLA. And as we climb today towards the Kibo huts, I meet him on his way down. Yeah, so did you uh, take an acclimatizing day? No. No, I had a five-day trip. Five-day trip? And yeah. how did you feel today? Um, not going to lie, it was, pretty, it was pretty rough. Especially uh, as I approached right after... Uh, Right after Gilman's Point, yeah, it started to kick in big time. I wanted to turn around, but it was freezing. Right, and I knew if I don't, if I didn't keep moving, right, it would be a lot worse. Right, but that's interesting because I just saw you, and I'm like, hang on, he shouldn't be a day ahead of us, but you are. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, um, the way my trip worked out, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do six days. Menachem then was evidence that not everybody does need an acclimatization day, and he too had not taken Diamox. By the way, I asked. The minimum age to climb Kilimanjaro is 10, and that doesn't seem too young. Back at the Marangu Gate, we'd met a Japanese family of three, whose 11-year-old son was walking off the mountain, having successfully summited, like he'd just been on a day trip in a local park. We saw a lot of Japanese on our climb, but the most common nationality on Kilimanjaro is, according to park records, American. Having backpacked around the world a few years ago, I can tell you that's not the case elsewhere and it's hard to know what to put it down to. That the British and the Germans are the next most common climbers probably reflects those nations' close ties to their former colonies. And it says much for the Tanzanians that they welcome us, no questions asked. Sound of some music as a porter comes past us, carrying one pack on his head and another on his back. It's a strange day's hiking. We're out for about five hours before we actually take our lunch break, at which point we can see the Kibo huts off in the distance. They're little more than a mile away at this point, but looks can be deceptive. So just arrived at Kibo hut. I did that last kilometre and a half, almost without stopping. Definite exertion, I feel it. All right, I'm going to go drink some water and find somewhere to shelter. The Kibo huts are Spartan at best, but nowhere near as bad as Michael Crichton described them in his book of travel stories, in which he compared them to a Siberian prison camp. Look, we're well over 15,000 feet above sea level, and we chose to be here. Under those circumstances, I'll take whatever they give us. And if that's a couple of barracks, divided into dorms, lined with triple bunk beds, that's what it's got to be. As for the equally Spartan toilet facilities, I use them several times before one of the porters lets me know that I'm actually using theirs. So given that I haven't even really noticed as much, it's inexcusable that we see an Italian couple defecating outside. Still, there is nothing for us to do. It's not only cold and windy, but just as we arrive, it starts snowing too. Understandably, this freaks us all out a little given that at midnight we're meant to be setting off in the freezing cold to climb the side of the volcano overnight. But Produs is really confident about it. Snow in the evening, he says, is almost a sure sign of a clear night ahead. Whatever hardships we may yet endure, there's surely going to be nothing compared to what travellers dealt with decades back, as Tim recalls of an Aussie he discussed the climb with in Sydney. And I said, what was it like? And he said, well... I don't really remember too much about it because um, the you know it was 
30 years ago and things were a bit different. We did it in four days and we had an Aussie tour guide and he did it in shorts. No. And uh, all I remember was I had the most blinding headache of my entire life. <laughs> I can't remember anything apart from I got frost nip and it took three months for my fingers to come back to life. Oh, my God. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mountain clothing has improved dramatically in the decades since Tim's associate got frostbite on Kilimanjaro. You'd like to think common sense has improved as well. As for the blinding headaches, well, they're actually just a given. I take Advil, somewhat precautionary and somewhat out of necessity. At dinner in our dorm, we welcome a woman called Rain, a thoroughly westernised and, it must be said, clearly wealthy solo traveller from the Middle East. Here's to everybody climbing the mountain tomorrow. Yeah. Hey. Cheers, everyone. Yeah. Let's do it. And Rain, welcome to our party. Welcome. The sky is clearing up, right? Yeah. Just like Prodis said. Prodis's forecast turned out to be 100% accurate. The snow is clearing, leading us to figure out ways to compare the climb ahead of us. Oh. Only 4,000 feet climb and six more kilometers to go. It's like, it's like Blackhead. Blackhead's yeah. steep. It's part of a road, a running race we do. It's 18 and a half miles long. <laughs> but Blackhead's the steepest part. That was last Sunday, actually. Wow. He did it. Incredibly, it was just nine days since Steve had done the escarpment trail run. Hiking from the back as the sweep. Fantastic training for Kilimanjaro. The blackhead portion that Steve referenced is an 1,100 foot climb in just under a mile. We'd be doing two and a half of those consecutively going up the side of the volcano. And need I mention, at high altitude. After dinner, our excited chatter dies down as we're sent to bed even earlier, at 7pm. The idea is we get four hours sleep before we're woken at 11. The reality? I don't know if any of us got more than an hour or two. I have a feeling you didn't sleep. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) A little bit. (coughs) I knew Protus hadn't slept because I could see him using his phone, checking messages from back home, One of the ironies about the modern world is that the higher you climb, the more contact you have with the rest of it. The fact that I'd been watching Prolis and the glow of his phone, of course, means I hadn't slept either. It's actually very warm. It it feels pretty good. It feels very warm because I know, I know, it's usually usually brutal, like cold, like, you know, as soon as you get up, like... To be clear... The mercury is still around the freezing level, and it will only get lower as we climb higher. Pole, pole, slowly, slowly, fully exposed to the overnight elements on the side of a volcano. Still, it's better than expected, and when I tell Protus what I'm wearing, he recommends I remove two of my synthetic running shirts. That still leaves me with about five layers, and on my lower half, I have running tights underneath ski pants. I've got a ski mask on, ski neck warmers, and on top of my thermal beanie, I've got a headlamp with fresh batteries. That's mandatory. So we're about 15 minutes behind schedule. 
are behind of the schedule. Yeah, I know. The absolute firm plan has been for us to leave at midnight sharp. So we can, touch wood, be at the Uhuru Peak around sunrise, 6.30, starting our descent before that sun becomes dangerous and to avoid the daily potential for bad weather to blow in. Yet somehow, and again, we seem to be falling behind. It's amazing when you have to pack for something like this. It's like last minute, this, that, and the other. All of a sudden, I can't find my buff. We're all missing something. That point I made earlier about the need to be bullied. As we line up outside, watching other groups from other dorm rooms getting into single file. Then Lucas, Protus's nephew, our guide who's been so laid back up until now, suddenly turns into a marine drill sergeant. He orders Marie to stand at the front of our group, which he will be leading. He puts Gwen behind her, me in the middle, Tim behind me, and Steve to bring up the rear, with our senior guide Simon behind him. Protus and Barnabas are free to roam between us. Lucas's selection is far from random. He's clearly been watching us and has got us all figured out. Marie is what we call the rock. She's relentless, unbreakable, so she can help set a pace. Gwen, however, has made no bones of her concerns about this overnight climb, and by putting her second, Lucas is giving her motivation in the form of Marie, but ensuring that if she does slow, we don't break the group apart in the process. I will just stay on her heels, and Tim, who's in no hurry himself, can reap the benefits. Steve should be assured of a steady pace at the back. I think we're ready to go. Just about. Head on up this mountain. We are blessed with the fact it is way warmer than we expected it to be. I've done one serious all-night hike before. That was the escarpment trail that we were referring to at dinner earlier. The hike we did was in December, and it was a serious adventure, but one for which we were also blessed with mild weather. I hadn't had to hike the day before, and I was able to drive home quickly afterwards. This overnight journey comes after a full day of climbing, of course. We're doing it on next to no sleep, as we know. And the climb itself would, of course, be daunting enough, even if we were starting at sea level, and not three miles high. As we depart, we can see what look like fluorescent snakes slowly making their way up the mountain. These are the headlamps of the other tour groups, all of which have set off before us. There is absolutely no indication of where these snakes might end. We know the climb up the side of the volcano to Gilman's Point, where we will hopefully crest the crater rim, is four kilometres in distance and 1,000 metres in elevation. It might be just as well we can't actually see the challenge ahead. Episode 4, The Peak. So we're about 15 minutes behind schedule, but I think we're ready to go, just about. It's early in the morning of Wednesday, August the 7th, and by early, I mean it's barely 30 minutes past midnight. After a full day of hiking uphill yesterday, and on next to no sleep, we, that's myself and my friends Steve, Marie, Gwen, 
and Tim have just set off from the Kibo huts for our overnight trek up the side of the Kilimanjaro volcano and hopefully onto the Uhuru Peak, the roof of Africa. I had expected it to be like howling winds, sub-zero, um, like wind chills down in the minuses. And uh, there is a little bit of snow coming down, but there's also plenty of stars in the sky, so it feels good. Wish us luck. The climb to the crater rim, Gilman's Point, is just four kilometres in distance, but 1,000 metres in elevation gain. That's 3,300 foot of climbing in just two and a half miles. A sign back at the Kibo huts, estimated four hours. Ah, it's a little after 2 a.m. We made our second water stop. We were relieved that the uh, Spice Girls caught up with us. The Spice Girls is the name that I've given the five young female British expats currently all living and working in Qatar. They're on the same route, Marangu, and the same six-day schedule as us, and they've become personal travel companions for their fellow British expats, Tim, who lives in Sydney, Australia, and myself, a long-term New Yorker. We'd have plenty of chances to pass each other on the way up the volcano. I'm not going to joke. This, this thing is uh, hard work. But at the same time, I fully expected it to be. Though we're taking water stops every hour or so, it's not just so we can rest, though that's appreciated. At high altitude, the air is dry and we're breathing quickly, which means our lungs are rapidly seeping fluid, even though we aren't perspiring. In short, it's easy to think we're not thirsty when in fact we're constantly dehydrating. We're each carrying around three litres of water and it's heavy, but though the temptation may be to drink it already, it needs to last us 12 hours or more. It's 3am, we're at Hansmeyer Cave. The Hansmeyer Cave is named for the pioneering German climber first to reach the summit in 1889. But although, like us, he came up from Orangu village, he then veered west of this particular route to ascend the volcano. And even on his chosen path of least resistance, he and his climbing partner had to carve stairs out of an ice cliff on these very slopes, with 20 axe blows required for each step. Recalling as much offers a vivid reminder of the glacier's rapid retreat since then, something discussed in the last episode. After all, part of the reason for Kilimanjaro's current day popularity is that one can at least in theory, walk all the way to the top. It looks pretty daunting in terms of the lines of light snaking up ahead, but my supposition is that we are more than halfway up Gilman Point. We're two and a half hours into hiking. We should be about another hour and a half on Gilman Point. And then, uh, then we're at the crater rim, and uh, we still have a bit of uphill and about uh, another couple of kilometres till we get to Uhuru Peak. And right now I've got hot tea in one hand. That tea was courtesy of the crew, by the way. Just had half a cliff bar. And uh, I think we're all doing okay. We are more than halfway up to Gilman's Point, both in distance and height. But when I suggest to Lucas, our lead guide, whose demeanour has gone from laid back to full on with this overnight climb, that we should therefore only have two more hours to go, he audibly scoffs, and then he barks back at me. Ask me that question in two hours. 
I do the math in my head. Does he really mean we're not going to crest until 7am, an hour after sunrise? He does. He too has done the math, and he has us all figured out. He knows that the increasingly thin air and the relentless climbing will slow us down step by step, and that we will tire regardless as the night wears on. He's also aware that we can only go as fast as our least fast climber, and there's no doubt that Gwen is finding it hard work. From just behind me, Tim assures her not to worry. He's happy to go as slow as need be. Marie is up front, Steve is at the back, and I shuffle along in the middle. The night wears on in something of a daze. All our focus on the exertion required to keep moving uphill at this altitude. Gwen pauses every few steps, and I'm not really sure what to say or do. So I ask Protus, my Tanzanian American friend who's organised our crew and travel and flown over from the Catskills to join us. He puts himself right alongside Gwen, offering the kind of encouragement I figure he's done for countless clients beforehand. He starts singing. We are going to make it to the And Gwen continues to put one step in front of the other. Pole, pole. Elsewhere on the mountain, we can hear other guides and porters singing their own Kilimanjaro songs. And as one group passes by us in full swing, I ensure to record them. The slightest crack of light appears from behind their group, signalling the impending dawn, and somehow it illuminates the music. It's a majestic moment, and for all that we're tired and want to be done with this climb, it's one I'd love to have been able to snuggle inside of for good. To be honest, the sunrise, as seen from this side of Kibo, is not really that spectacular. It's more of a relief than anything else that we can now be in daylight. But of course, daylight reveals how far we still have to ascend. And, uh... It's a long way. The last part of the trek, not surprisingly, is the hardest, as the pitch steepens and the volcanic scree that has formed our footing for most of the mountainside turns now to volcanic boulders, spewed out from inside the crater over the millennia. It's starting to get almost hand over fist. There are clouds down below. Uh, my Wednesday is down below. There are climbers down below. All in all, we are doing pretty darn well. We are well over 18,000 feet above sea level in what's officially known as extreme altitude. The Alpine desert is long gone. This is pure Alpine. Nothing lives up here, not for long at any rate as the carcass of Hemingway's famous snow leopard confirmed. We are going to make it to the loop of The seemingly endless, certainly breathless, 
and laboriously slow uphill trudge is punctuated by little more than the sound of protest singing, the occasional wheeze of self-motivation and various high-altitude coughs. I'm so glad I packed lozenges. Last few steps. Last few steps. But now, six and a half hours after we set off from the Kibo huts, on the exact schedule Lucas was able to predict over four hours back, we finally close in on Gilman's Point. I can't contain my enthusiasm. Last few steps. Here we are. There's a sign at Gilman's Point that tells us we're at 5,685 metres, 18,652 feet above sea level. I managed to get my gloves off, get my Pixel 3 out, and record our last few steps up and over the crater rim. Proudus. What's up? We did it. Finally, did right? Gilman Point and Gwen got there ahead of me. Yeah. We did it. That audio suggests lightheaded elation, certainly on my part. But the video that accompanies it shows some desperate faces. Tim is utterly dazed. Gwen completely exhausted. And I even have an image of a guide or porter sitting down, looking totally spent himself. Protus later admits to me that for all he was able to motivate Gwen, he felt every step of it too. He hasn't done the push-up from the Kibo huts in many, many a year, and it is a particularly tough climb. Gilman's point. All right. On the crater rim, we encounter the Spice Girls, and they appear to be cheering us on. Then I realise it's the last of their number, Leah, that they're motivating. Ah, and your girl Leah's about to make it up, right? She was struggling. Leah's the one who had Tim and me fooled a few days ago, telling us they were the English national netball team. Like all of them, she's been full of good cheer and youthful energy. But her struggle was so severe, up to Gilman's point, that the others had to finish the ascent without her leaving her to an individual guide so that she could finish the climb at her own pace. When she makes it to the rim, to the sound of her expat friend's huge cheers, she sits down, folds herself over, bursts into tears. And then, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying as much, vomits. Congratulations. Thank you. It's good fun, right? Nothing like going out on a six and a half hour climb up a mountain in the dark. In the in the sub-freezing on no sleep at high altitude. Don't hate on me. I was about to get my comeuppance. We still had that two kilometres to go before we would reach Uhuru Peak. And we still had 700 feet in elevation. And all of a sudden, at least at my end, the world turned upside down. My vision was no longer clear. But I can't just say it was blurred either. I didn't feel drunk. And yes, I do know what that feels like. But I certainly wasn't, well, sober, normal. The sun was blazing. There were lots of people milling around. And I somewhat lost my bearings. Steve and Marie initially set off ahead of me at what looked like a furious pace. I learned later they were just keen to get out of the sun. One of our guides, I think it was Simon, attached himself to me. And we clambered on alone for a while. I had no idea where Tim and Gwen were at this point. I never doubt to get up Gilman Point. 
and there was this feeling of elation when we finally did it, however long it took. And it's like, right, lead us on to Uhuru Peak. In theory, it seemed all so easy. But really, this truly was the hardest part. We were no longer protected by the night air. We were at 19,000 feet. We were exhausted, having really not slept for well over 24 hours. And the pace had quickened up too. We'd taken so long climbing the volcano that we now needed to speed things up. I'd been comfortable with that slow pace up the side of the mountain, but I wasn't comfortable trying to walk fast with no real understanding of who I was and barely just about where I was. Me, Tim, Stephen, I don't know about Marie, but we're lightheaded, feeling the altitude and feeling like we left it all on uh, Gilman, Gilman Point, right? The Marangu route definitely has its benefits, but the climb up the volcano from the Kibo huts is the steepest, and it leaves the longest distance from the crater rim to the actual Uhuru Peak. And it's enough at this altitude, and after overnight hiking and a day's hiking before that, to cause many people to turn back. Once we returned to the Marangu Gate, I had a good look at the logbook and noticed that a fair few people listed Gilman's as their personal peak. We all reconvened what may have been half an hour or so later. Time had lost pretty much all meaning by now. We were way up top of the crater and busy admiring the ice cliffs just a few hundred yards down the hill from us. A couple of days ago, Protus had suggested we could wander off trail to explore those ice cliffs. The very idea of it seemed preposterous at this point. We all stopped for another short bite to eat and more liquid and I took photos of the cliffs. And then, as we embarked on another short, steep climb in the exposed, bright sun, I checked my pockets for my pixel. I couldn't find it. Damn. I'd climbed almost to the very roof of Africa, and now I was going to lose something? And my phone, of all things, with all this precious film footage on it. I put my bag down and ran back off down the hill. Lucas set off after me. At the spot where we'd stopped to eat, there was no sign of it. I don't know what I would have done next, but fortunately we heard shouting from back up the trail. Protus had had the good sense to rummage through my bag, and it had taken him all of about ten seconds to find my phone. So I'd just gone and added an extra hundred feet or so of climbing to my summit journey, and for no good reason, other than to provide you with a perfect example of how the thin air affects the mind's ability to think clearly. So, it's coming in, it's coming up to nine o'clock and I can finally see the sign, the marks of Kilimanjaro, Uhuru Peak, the shortest point in Africa. And uh, it's about three, 400 yards away right now. And I f feel now like when I ran my first marathon in New York City, I was spent. I was absolutely done for. I'd never experienced running a marathon before. I didn't know whether to throw up. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And uh, that's how I sort of felt at the top of Gilman's Point. So I kind of feel like when I ran that first marathon, and it's, and it's like if somebody said, yeah, but you've got to run another five miles to get your medal. It doesn't count. You haven't finished. Uh, and I wouldn't have been able to do it that day. And to be honest, this last hour 
trying to deal with uh, getting up to Kitty's Peak. Felt the same way. I do not feel like I've been on planet Earth. Listening to the audio, I sound like I'm quite with it. And yet the next audio you're going to hear, recorded on my phone as I approach the true summit, I do not recall making. I honestly had no recollection of it until I got back home and went through the recordings. It took me totally by surprise. The video part of it looks like it's being played back in slow motion, such is my pace at this point. And I won't say I'm making total sense either. But I'm going to let you hear it because, as I close in on the sign that confirms that I've made it to the roof of Africa, I find three of my climbing friends there ahead of me. And somehow Leah, the Spice Girl who had had such a struggle up to Gilman's Point, is coming back the other way, having ascended already. I must have had a hard time of it this last couple of hours. I'm just about on the roof of Africa. A couple of my friends are there already. We'll get our photos taken. This is what we came for. Uh, you know, it's just a celebration of being able to do something that's possible to do if you set your mind to it. It has a beauty to it and the merit to it and doesn't seem to leave any damage. So I am dead happy. Excuse me if I get emotional once I get there. We did it. When Tim made it to the top a few seconds after me, one of the other guides alongside him, him looking just as bad as I felt, we hugged. I've known Tim since I was about 15, but back when we were running our fanzines and playing in bands, we just had no way of ever being able to imagine standing on the rooftop of Africa together. It was breathtaking in every way. It was breathtaking in its beauty, and it was breathtaking in its brutality. I feel like I should be euphoric in my narration here. After all, we'd done it. All of us. we climbed to the top of Kilimanjaro, the roof of Africa, the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. 5,895 metres above sea level. Yahoo! But realistically, any euphoria was left back at Gilman's Point, a couple of hours earlier, where you could hear the cheers. The sensation upon arriving at Uhuru Peak was more one of relief. Yes, we hugged. Yes, we smiled for the camera. But we weren't singing and laughing. We were too exhausted for that. Tim and I certainly weren't the only ones to get choked up. A full 36 hours later, over a celebration dinner in Arusha, having all just showered for the first time in a week, Gwen let on that she had these certain origin stories she'd brought with her. One of those origin stories was related to a sixth grade teacher who was very misogynistic and very threatened by me. And... um that I had done this report that included Tanzania and included Kilimanjaro and, oh. and my, you know, desire to go there to Africa and experience Africa and his making fun of me. Wow. You know, that I, w- I would never go there, you know, to Kilimanjaro. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, God, when I was up there on the top of the mountain, I was like face to face yeah. with with how he treated me 
And then on the other side of the coin was the following year, I had a social studies teacher who was a, a young woman, and she had been in the Peace Corps in in Kenya, and in Nairobi, and in Nairobi and close to Kilimanjaro. She told us, taught us Swahili that clearly I didn't remember, and different things like that. But here, here was this right after this other experience with Africa, with this male teacher, to have this female teacher who had lived there in Kenya for two years, mm. and and so it reinforced my I am going to go there. Everybody has their own reason for tackling something like Kilimanjaro. For me, to some extent, it comes down to George Mallory's famous quote about why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. Because it's there. I don't have any interest in climbing Mount Everest, I should state, not now that it's become a trash-ridden, gridlocked death zone for anyone with $10,000 to spend on the permit that Nepal, a desperately poor and inexperienced democracy, offers to all comers. I don't want to contribute to the desecration of our planet's rooftop. And I pause here to acknowledge that while Mount Kilimanjaro is extraordinarily well kept, remarkably clean and not littered with oxygen tanks or dead bodies, there's no doubt that we're contributing to its erosion. This is the inherent contradiction of global travel. Any time one steps into the wild, one first tames it and then inadvertently or if you're Coca-Cola or Kellogg's or a similar company, you consciously commercialise it. I don't have a solution to this contradiction, other than that I hope that the benefits of a journey like this outweigh the drawbacks. And I believe that they do. Just a few hours later, descending down to the Harombo huts, Tim and I got to review our climb. And as ever, he had some good perspective to offer. You know, it's, uh, it's a bloody great big mountain. Yes. It gets cold. It's just shy of 20,000 feet. If you've, if you've ever been a plane, and they say they're cruising at 30,000 feet, imagine climbing to 30. But of course, that's exactly what we did. And having now achieved our goal, we spend way too long celebrating it. First, there are the inevitable photographs. Individual photos, group photos, Photos with our crew. And then other groups arrive and they want pictures. And our crew, who look like they could happily spend all day at the summit, offered to take them. And then Protus asks to interview me for an Instagram post. And despite the wind lapping at us, he goes ahead and uses it. Given that you asked, when you do something like this, it's not just about the summit. It's not just about the destination. Every moment of it has been wonderful. But when I'm done, Tim says to me, as if he's just remembered as much. You know, we're advised to be up here for a few minutes at most. It's been 45. That George Mallory fella, by the way, he died on Mount Everest. It took 75 years to find his body. Now, none of us are expecting to die out here, but just because we didn't need emergency oxygen doesn't mean we aren't doing enormous damage to our bodies by staying up here for this long. The altitude sickness immediately kicks back in now that I have to start working again. And this time, it stays with me. You know that near sleep state? Like when you take a nap and you start dreaming but you know you're still awake? It was like that. I started having, well I guess you could call them mild hallucinations. I knew I was on Mount Kilimanjaro, but my brain was running a dual narrative. I could have coped with that, probably. 
But additionally, I had that nausea that you get when you're not well. The part that comes a few minutes before you actually throw up. The part where you groan. Much to Protus's amusement, I'm sure, I groaned all the way down the mountain. Marie and Steve, solid and steady as they are, were first to descend back to base. Gwen seemed to have gotten a second wind as well, and she soon left me for dust. Tim was struggling behind me for a while, until his guides decided, literally, to take matters in hand. And they basically ran me down the trail, <laughs> the most direct route. Right. Which was pretty wearing on the legs, but I gained a lot of ground in a very little time. Protus asked if I wanted to slide down the scree, a quad-busting exercise, a little like snowboarding without snow, or a board come to that. I said no. I followed the more lengthy zigzag trail all the way down. And when we reached the Kibo huts, I took about all the medicines I had on hand, not many to be blunt, and laid down. We should have been in for a minimum of two hours sleep before our afternoon descent, another 10k downhill back to the Harombo huts. But we were so drastically behind schedule that we were only allowed the one. Still, that one hour? Turned out it was all I needed. I'd now had a grand total of perhaps three hours sleep in the last 32. But by the time we set off from Kibo, down through the Alpine Desert and into the Heather Zone, I felt right as rain. In fact, coming down from the Kibo huts in the afternoon, I almost felt like I was being rushed. It's understandable. We've done what we came here for. It's time to get off the mountain. But of course you can appreciate things so much more on your way back down without the exertion required by climbing into thinner air. There's actually the same amount of oxygen in the air, yeah. but the pressure is less. Right. So to actually bring it into your body, you know, I think uh, at the top there, it's uh, 19,000 feet, it's 40% uh, less pressure. Right. So your body's got to work 40% harder to get the oxygen into the system. Tim is right, of course, except that at 19,000 feet, what's called our effective oxygen rate is actually less than 50%. We had to work literally twice as hard just to breathe normally up there. John Reader's book makes an interesting case that you can follow the history of the Earth and the development of life upon it as you come back down from the peak of Kilimanjaro. For example, only a single particularly hardy species of spider has been known to survive on the crater, digesting whatever is blown in on the wind, and even then it spends much of its time underground. But as you come back down to the Kibo huts, you notice the moss and the lichen, which have survived a couple of hundred million years on Earth already and will surely outlast us humans. Then you observe the occasional high-flying raven, and below the Kibo huts, as you descend into the saddle, the surprisingly beautiful everlastings. And you really know you're back down in a life-supporting zone when you see the fully erect lobelias and ground cells. By the end of the afternoon, we're back at the Harombo huts. How are you feeling now, Gwen? I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm so exhausted. Um. Yeah, but you know, I had a great walk back. I, I chatted a lot with um, Simon. Yeah, good. Yeah.
Simon, we've come to realise, is a legend on Kilimanjaro. Not just because he's climbed the mountain well over 500 times, but because he's also served as a ranger on it, and as a detective as well, working in the parks to catch poachers. Two days later, we're in a car with Lucas on the main road from Arusha to Moshi, and Lucas paused to say hello to Simon, who was the only person on the streets wearing a suit. It was something of a surprise for us. He'd actually been sporting the same Fulham FC shirt all the way up and down the mountain. I did want to say, you know, a funny thing about altitude sickness, that Marie and I had never been to altitude, and I got it, and this woman was like a machine. Marie really was amazing. Out of the five of us, She's the only one who seemed to just go. In fact, the next day, as we make our way down from the Harambo huts, she comes jogging past us, getting a mile in or so on the trails. I'd been keen to do that on our acclimatisation day, but Produs had strictly forbidden it. And today, my backpack's too heavy and I'm not dressed right for it. Still, after we get through the Mandara huts, named for a 19th century local chieftain of serious renown and significant brutality. Marie and I get to talking about her experience. Actually, since even when we got to the gate, I began feeling the altitude. And I felt, so the entire trip I've been feeling um, shortness of breath, of course, I, I guess everyone does, but a sort of a tightness in the head, and my stomach's really been queasy throughout. So, and then so when we climbed, it was just gauging that, feeling how my head was getting a little muffier, but still being fine. You know, the stomach, I wasn't really thinking of too much, but I was, you know, definitely as we were going up, I was really just like, okay, okay, you know, get better. But my head, it starts feeling like a little start of a headache. It's like, okay. <laughs> I would posit that her long-distance running experience on the trails gave her a cardiovascular strength an ability to produce oxygen under strenuous circumstances that the non-runners in our group couldn't match. So when you do have issues, when things do come up, you know, bad things and tough things, you're just like, okay, this, I can get through. I have that strength. As for why she then fared better than Steve and myself, fellow long-distance runners, I might posit that her cautious, long-view approach to the climb paid dividends. It's probably no coincidence that the longer the long-distance running race, the more women you find placing high up the field. And on that note, I'd be meaning to add, Gwen never doubted her ability to get up to Gilman's point. She knew she was going to do it. She knew she wasn't turning back. You know, it meant so much to me, Marie, that when I was, like, totally melting down, you know, the misogynistic teacher and all this gender stuff, that there was a woman on the mountain there with me you know, yeah, I because I was like, this is something that I knew that she would get. Yes. Oh, and and that most people wouldn't. Yeah, that was powerful. And it added another element for me. Cause it was, you know, just... Our dinner that Thursday evening offered the last quality time together. The next day, Steve and Marie would head out on a two-day safari with Protus. Along with Lucas and the driver, I would take Gwen and Tim back to an incredible school for the poor. Some Bernadettes that I'd visited in 2016, just outside Arusha. We'd see out the Friday at a tourist-friendly bar in Arusha, watching a covers band as well as the first fixture of the new English soccer season. Lucas and our cook, Juma, had come along, ostensibly to protect us, 
Though A, that was unnecessary, and B, I made the mistake of offering to buy them drinks all evening, and it was us who got them home in a taxi instead. Gwen would stay on a couple more days. Tim and I would fly back to our respective countries on the Saturday. Our adventure on Kilimanjaro itself had truly ended back at the Marangu Gate, where it had started the previous Saturday lunchtime. It's custom for the crew to provide some sort of celebratory song and dance after a climb, successful or not. Some are performed on the trail itself. Prodas, though, had wanted to wait until our entire crew of 19, guides, porters, cooks, drivers and all, could be in attendance. And it was a further mark of his crew's dedication, commitment and genuine zest and enthusiasm. But whereas the other dances we'd witnessed lasted a few minutes at most, ours ran for 45. The crew just wouldn't stop singing and dancing, bringing us into their fold several times, their choruses punctuated by a familiar chant from Marie's especially ebullient porter, Maruga. Halfway through, I turned around and saw the Spice Girls with front row seats at the picnic shelter, giving us the thumbs up. It was a lovely way to round out our connection and our new friendships. The tipping process is inevitably fraught, even for Americans who are more familiar with it than many other nationalities. It's recommended to add 10% in American cash dollars to the cost of your climb and to distribute that money to the team individually. But there was simply no way for us to calculate appropriate sums for 19 people, and we wouldn't have had to change either. The Roof of Africa Adventures, Protus's travel company, had been exceptional every step of the way, and we placed our trust in Barnabas, the head guide, to distribute our tips appropriately. <laughs> Each of us gave a speech, as did Protus, and then I got to give one more. Some of you were with us on the mountain every day as our guides, but we could not have done this trip without every one of you doing everything that you do, the porters, the cook, the waiters, and the guides. So even when you weren't on the mountain with us, you were with us, making sure we got to the top and we came back down in one piece, happy, and... Um, Thank you for your, just your warmth and your generosity and your kindness. <coughs> and uh, we are so happy to have done this and to have been with all of you. Asante sana. From there, we shared a bus back to Arusha, the crew disembarking one by one, alternating on the bus between catching up on their phones and watching bongo music videos that aired from a television screen at the front of the bus. Bongo is an African form of reggae hip-hop, replete with early 2000s era obligatory bling and scantily dressed women. The world, after all, is an increasingly small place, as a number of people attempting to summit Kilimanjaro every year exemplifies.
but the relative ease of travel and our universal commonalities as humans. Well, that, my friends, is all the more reason to explore it. The mini-series From Kingston to Kilimanjaro was produced at the studios of Radio Kingston in New York. If you have any comments about or suggestions for this show, email onestepbeyond at ijamming.net or find us on social media. Just search for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. Thanks to Mark Lerner for designing the logo and to the members of Madness for permission to use their music as our theme song. You can subscribe to this show on pretty much every podcast platform, again by searching for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a positive review or rating. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. <laughs>